It's Friday, November 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. COVID disruptions to classrooms continue to happen across the country, but many schools are turning to testing over quarantine to keep kids in class. Test to Stay programs are screening students regularly after exposure to known cases rather than sending them straight home. This allows them to remain in class while they continue to test negative. Sabrina Siddiqui, White House reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how schools are finding ways to keep kids in classrooms. Next, the iconic Staples Center in Los Angeles will have a new name come Christmas Day. In a branding deal worth $700 million, it will now be known as Crypto.com Arena. Crypto.com allows people to trade in popular cryptocurrencies and boasts over 10 million users. Anna Hertenstein, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the larger play, the crypto industry's latest move to get mainstream recognition. Finally, CVS said it will be closing 900 stores over the next three years as it shifts its strategy to focus on digital sales and more healthcare services. They will be spinning off into three different kinds of stores, one with their traditional retail locations, One will offer primary care services, and the last will be health hubs that offer mental health services and other wellness features. Melissa Repko, retail reporter at CNBC, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. This is giving students the option to stay in school if they've been exposed so long as they test daily or regularly and test negative. And I think some teachers in school districts we've talked to just say it's prevented continued disruptions. It's, you know, quarantines have been really traumatic for parents, students, teachers alike. So it's giving kids a chance to stay in the classroom. Joining us now is Sabrina Siddiqui, White House reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sabrina. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about an interesting thing that's going on in schools when it comes to COVID right now. Obviously, we've seen all the ups and downs and implementation of plans and how it's been a really rocky time for schools. I think this is the third academic year that we've been kind of getting these COVID-19 disruptions. But one of the things that's been coming up that a lot of places are having some success with is test to stay. So basically, before, if somebody was exposed to somebody that might have had covid Everybody, all the students had to go home. They had a quarantine for a period of time, all that. Now some schools are doing daily testing, maybe every other day. And if you're testing negative, you get to stay in school. And uh, it's kind of easing up all the disruptions that are happening, at least. So, Sabrina, tell us a little bit more about this. As you point out, it's been really difficult for schools to grapple with the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. A lot of schools across the country did not even fully reopen until this fall a couple months ago. So many schools have actually been closed for a year and a half. And those schools that have opened, whether prior to this particular academic year or during, have still grappled with how do we test kids? How do we keep them safe? And more importantly, how do we avoid continued disruptions? And so test to stay is effectively, as you said, a way to shorten quarantine periods for students who have not actually tested positive for coronavirus, but simply been exposed to someone in school who tested positive. And as you said, what a lot of schools earlier were doing was abiding by these guidelines where students just had to quarantine for anywhere from seven to 10 days simply because they had been exposed. Whereas now this is giving students the option to stay in school if they've been exposed so long as they test daily or regularly and test negative. And I think some teachers in school districts we've talked to just say it's prevented continued disruptions. It's, you know, quarantines have been really traumatic for parents, students, teachers alike. So it's giving kids a chance to stay in the classroom. 
you know, a lot of these schools were barely implementing new programs. So even something like Test to Stay has been rolled out unevenly across school boards and school districts. It's interesting because you have sort of mixed views among school districts about what they want to see from the federal government in terms of guidance. The CDC obviously does have guidance for schools, and so far they have not formally endorsed Test to Stay. They've kept with the previous guidance you were talking about that if students are exposed, they should quarantine for seven to 10 days. They could test out sooner on day five. But, you know, as they said that, you know, local school districts can make certain decisions, of course, uh, on their own. Now, you have some people who say they wish that test to stay would be endorsed by the CDC because it would limit quarantine periods and also it would create a federal standard. But having said that, there are other schools that say the school districts are dealing with very localized populations, different problems, different challenges, different sets of resources. Some of them can afford to do this testing daily or regularly. Other school districts are really hamstrung when it comes to resources, and they might not have the funding in place to be testing kids on a daily basis. So some people say they're actually happy that the federal government has stayed out of their business and they'd rather do what works for them. But I think what you're finding is even a year and a half into the pandemic, it's just been very uneven across the country. And a lot of school districts are just trying to essentially make it up as they go along. Now, we've seen a lot of pushback and back and forth when it comes to parents and their views on what should be happening in the schools. Have there been any reaction to at least this? Because obviously you're You can keep the kids in school longer. That's all great. But now you add this layer of now you have to test daily or every other day. Has there been any reaction or pushback from parents? You know, I talked to some parents who are very supportive of it because their children were just so tired of staying home. And the parents were struggling with having to have their kids at home because, you know, a lot of people are also back at work. Some of the flexibility that was there in the pandemic isn't there for everyone. And it's just disruptive. Now, at the same time, when I talked to the school school districts, they are still dealing with, even with something like test to stay, differing views around testing. You know, there are still a lot of parents who don't like any of these COVID protocols and don't want to have to test their kids. They may not want to test them at all, let alone on a regular basis. And then it's also logistically complicated sometimes to receive a call at night saying, hey, your kid was a close contact. If you wanted to test this day, come in tomorrow morning at seven, you know, and have your kid tested and do that for the next five days or seven days on a daily basis. That means parents have to adjust their work schedules. And, you know, there's a commuting factor, putting your kid through a test every day. So, you know, it's kind of mixed, I would say. But I do think more broadly, what you're hearing from the majority of parents is that they want their kids to be in school and they want their kids to be learning in person and they want to do that however is possible and as safely as possible. I think the one question mark I would point out is there's not enough data and this is why the CDC hasn't formally endorsed it. There's just not enough data yet to know if like, a test to say is potentially causing more outbreaks at schools. So far, there hasn't been any definitive example where a test to say has been linked to a major outbreak. But of course, you know, there is a potential for false negatives. They're using rapid tests for this program primarily. So that's one question mark. And and what we'll see down the road is if the data supports that this is in fact as safe and as effective as, you know, the model that had been in place prior with the longer quarantine periods. There is a little bit of data though that suggests that it has saved school days so far this year for some students that would have otherwise been quarantined. I think out of Massachusetts, we got some numbers. Yeah, so in Massachusetts, Test to Stay has saved 85,000 school days this year for students who would have otherwise been in quarantine, according to the state's Department of Education, which put out a report. I think over there, there are about 2,200 schools that have signed up for testing programs, which include Test to Stay. They're not all Test to Stay, but you know, it also did 
It requires some resources from the state to stand up that program. So Governor Charlie Baker, who's a Republican, you know, he had to activate the National Guard to go in and help with COVID-19 testing in K-12 schools because there weren't enough staff members there to conduct those tests. So there's a resources question, I think, for a lot of places, whether or not they can stand up a program like Test to Stay. But it is without question saving school days. I mean, there was one parent I talked to for a nine-year-old in uh, Marietta City Schools in Georgia, and she's in third grade, and she was a close contact, and the prospect of being home for another 10 days, up to 10 days, was really daunting for a kid who's already been home for a greater part of the school year during COVID. So she was able to actually to test to stay and stay in class and all those tests came out negative. And her father was saying it's just important to get that social interaction right now and to also have consistency for kids who've actually suffered a great deal of learning loss. You know, there's a lot of studies showing the loss of learning over time because of COVID. And that's something that kids across the country are going to be making up for months and years to come. Sabrina Siddiqui, White House reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. We have hundred um, percent conviction, and this uh, this is a, a worldwide investment. You know, this is one of the world's most iconic venues, and we uh, are excited to um, uh, uh, partnering with AEG um, in um, in LA, the cultural and creative capital of the world. Joining us now is Anna Hertenstein, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Anna. Hey, not a problem. The very, very famous Staples Center in Los Angeles is going to be getting a new name starting on Christmas Day. It's going to be called Crypto.com Arena. Now, you know, a lot of people may know the Staples Center is home to the Lakers, the Clippers, uh, in in uh, the LA Kings in hockey, the WNBA Sparks. It's been in operation for 22 years now. And this new deal with Crypto.com is a 20-year deal $700 million is what we're hearing it's all worth. So, Anna, help us walk through some of this because there's larger implications of this too. You know, cryptocurrency is just splashing on the scene even bigger with a big deal like this. Yeah, exactly. This is the cryptocurrency industry's latest move to try to gain more recognition in the mainstream. As you said, it's a really iconic venue. And I really love the symbolism of going from staples to crypto, going from the kind of paper economy to the digital economy. Definitely, and yeah. um, essentially, Crypto.com is a cryptocurrency brokerage, an exchange they're based in Singapore. They were founded in 2016, and they've been spending a lot of money recently to try to get more awareness, more recognition. They had a commercial with Matt Damon recently, and now this, this is their latest move to try to essentially introduce themselves to the public. You mentioned, obviously, they're like a brokerage. What else do they do? They... I think on their website, they said they're the fastest growing crypto app. They have 10 million plus users. What kind of services? What do they all do there? So they allow their users to trade uh, crypto, everything from the more recognizable ones like Bitcoin to ones that are lesser known. They also let people trade things like NFTs and other digital assets. They do all kinds of stuff. We're talking about cryptocurrency companies trying to make a splash on this. They're not the first one. There was uh, FTX Arena. They bought the mm-hmm. uh, the stadium where the or the arena where Miami Heat play. So this is kind of the trend, as you mentioned, just the making a bigger splash on the scene and sports in particular. They see as a, a big way to do it to open themselves to a broader audience. Yeah, exactly. I interviewed their CEO, and he said exactly that. He sees sports as a really good avenue to you know get their brand out there. And I think the the scale of the deal, the seven hundred million that you mentioned, really shows the financial firepower behind cryptocurrencies. 
or behind the industry, I mean. Bitcoin hit a record high earlier this month. So these you know, companies working in, working in the industry have money to spend. I mentioned that FTX Arena, that naming rights deal was $135 million. I don't know how many years that deal was worth, but we're talking $700 million over 20 years. Obviously, the Staples Center is so iconic, as you mentioned, but this is a huge jump from that other deal right there. Exactly. Yeah. And it does show that the owners and operators of the stadium clearly think that crypto.com will still be around in 20 years. It does give a kind of almost like a, a sense of legitimacy or trust to the industry. Right, exactly. And, and and to that point, you made a mention in your article about how sometimes these uh, branding deals don't always go the way they're supposed to. And, and sometimes the deals turn sour and naming rights have to be given back. Tell us a little bit about some of those examples. Yeah, I mean, the classic example is Enron. I mean, we all remember what happened to them. And back in 2002, they had to give back the naming rights to a stadium in Houston, where they had to go around and essentially remove their logo from the ballpark. And so, uh, yeah, as you said, there are some examples of these naming rights deals going sour. Yeah, there was also something that happened with the Patriots Stadium, Gillette Gillette Stadium. They had to take it over after uh, something went wrong with their previous deal. So, yeah, just the bigger signals, you know, for the cryptocurrency market, as I mentioned, just... So many more people are getting to it. We know big investors are, but you know, a lot of people throughout the pandemic really started trading heavily in cryptocurrencies, altcoins, all sorts of stuff. And people are just looking for a lot of different ways to start trading and investing there. And uh, I mean, this is just a, a big landmark deal, it seems like, for cryptocurrency, the industry in general, really. Anna Hertenstein, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. That means that there's less foot traffic in some cases to these stores, and so they need to look for another way to drive traffic. And they're looking to healthcare and urgent care type appointments, like going in for strep throat, as a way to get people into their stores. Joining us now is Melissa Repko, retail reporter at CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Melissa. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about some interesting business news with regards to CVS. They're going to be closing about 900 stores over the next years as they shift into kind of a different strategy. They're going to put a lot more emphasis on the digital side of things, but they're kind of going to be working with three different store formats. And, uh, you know, obviously this is on a different scale than some of the other things we've seen, but we saw GE and Johnson & Johnson kind of start breaking up their companies, working into different divisions. As I mentioned, it's different, but CVS is kind of going in that mode right now. So tell us a little bit about what we're learning on on their plans. Yes, so CVS announced today that it's going to close 300 stores over each of the next three years. And it's also going to reinvent the way that some of its existing stores look. So it's going to have more of a healthcare bent to many of those stores. As a lot of people have bought things like toothpaste and even gotten refills of prescriptions online, that means that there's less foot traffic in some cases to these stores. And so they need to look for another way to drive traffic. And they're looking to healthcare and urgent care type appointments, like going in for strep throat as a way to get people into their stores. I guess they bought Aetna. So they're into the health insurance business as well. And this, you know, that's why they're working at this. They're trying to make some of these different store formats to be, uh, they have their minute clinics. They want to make these health hubs for other expanded services. What are we looking at with these different formats? 
So they are really looking towards health as a way to drive business in two ways. As I mentioned, it's a way to get people in the store to make other purchases and perhaps getting their prescriptions filled there. But it's also a way to potentially drum up more claims for Aetna. So it's been trying to weave together the insurance side of its business with the drugstore side by having people who are covered through Aetna go to things like the Minute Clinic or get their flu shot at CVS or even perhaps go in to talk to a therapist for their mental health. So these are just ways to get people to come into their stores, which has creates this sort of cycle for them and weaves together the different sides of its business. For their minute clinics, you know, they provide urgent care for common things, strep throat, flu shots, things like that. Are those uh, actual doctors? Are they nurses that are working there? I'm just curious about how that works. It's a combination. Sometimes they're registered nurses instead of doctors, and sometimes it's the pharmacist that's playing a role at the minute clinic. Like if people go in for a vaccine or a test that 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 pharmacist can administer. So it really is on a case-by-case basis, and it varies a bit by location. What did they say with regards to possible job losses? I mean, you're going to close 900 stores. I know it's going to be over some time, but you know, not everybody's going to fit into whatever health hub or minute clinic might remain. That's a good question, and we don't know the answer yet. CVS declined to say how many people this would affect, but did say it would try to move them to other positions. And considering the challenge that retailers are having with the labor shortage, perhaps there would be more roles than usual to move them into over the coming years, depending on how the economy shapes up. But we'll just have to see how many people that will be over time. And perhaps some of the new roles that CVS creates by adding more health services will create new kinds of roles, too. Somebody that we were talking to was saying, you know, the retail side of CVS's business is a little shabby, outdated stores, lighting could be bad, <laughs> depressing interiors, they said, you know, messy merchandising. And, you know, not to knock on them or anything, but I live very close to CVS that I frequent often just because it's so close. But I read that and I was like, wow, that's exactly my store right here. It, it, you know, that's the other side of the thing that they have to definitely improve. It resonated with me, too. I often visit different retailer stores just to get a sense of how things are going and how things are looking. And at my local CVS, there also has been a lot of unpacked boxes, a lot of messy aisles, carts on the floor, huge shelves that are bare. And and those are the kind of things that some retail analysts have pointed to and said that in a way, the closures have been a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you let your stores languish for too long, people will notice and they'll go elsewhere. They might go to Target, they might go to Walmart, they might go to another drugstore, or they might just say, I'm going to order those items online. And so that can then lead to your stores having less of that foot traffic and then having to make a decision to close more of them. You mentioned Walmart and Target. Other companies are really making these steps into the same arena as what you would think of, you know, CVS, Rite Aid, Walgreens even, you know, all these other stores are starting to step up into these same sectors and all this competition for them, you know, really kind of prompts a lot of these decisions to turn things around and look for those growth opportunities. Exactly. It's become a very fragmented space. And that's why CVS has really thought about what can we do differently? And it's turned to Aetna. That's why it acquired Aetna. And it's thought about, you know, what types of health services you need professionals for that maybe other people can't get into, even if they're selling things like pain relievers. Melissa Repko, retail reporter at CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.